there, Cameron? Welcome to Napoleon Bonaparte episode 15, J. David Markham. Well, hello, Cameron. How are you doing today? I'm good, thank you, mate. How are you doing? How How is the weather in your part of Washington, Olympia? Well, after all that time where we had so much bad weather, we've had very good weather, thank you. It was a bit chilly today, but, but sunny, and it's supposed to be sunny all week, uh, which means I get to go take some nice outside walks uh, that will no doubt compete with the, uh, the the bowl football bowl season coming up. I uh, hope you had a nice Christmas, by the way. Very nice. We, we are recording this uh, for future posterity. We're recording this uh, at the end of December in the year 2006. And, it is uh, the tw- it's the 28th of December, uh, just uh, two days after my birthday. So uh, I had Christmas so one day, my birthday the next. Uh, uh, that's getting old, but but then again, so am I. And, and happy birthday from myself and from the audience and all of the... The fans around the world of your books and your documentaries and your collection. On behalf of all of us, I'd like to give three hearty cheers. Well, thank you very much. I People ask me how old am I because I, I look so young, of course. Of course. Uh, I can say that because we are not yet doing a video podcast. Uh, but I tell them that I am uh, uh, 21 years old. With 40 years of experience. <laughs> now, speaking of a video podcast, you gave me the treat yesterday of taking your spanking new webcam and giving me a visual tour of the study in which you're sitting at the moment and all of the Napoleonic memorabilia adorning the walls and the cabinets and the desks and the trophy shelves. That's uh, some collection you've got there, David. Well, thank you very much, Cameron. It's it's really the tip of the iceberg. Uh, most of the really good stuff is upstairs, but but I do have a nice uh, library. I've I've been very blessed uh, to to have a house uh, uh, which has this uh, quite large room uh, in the lower level, and and uh, we turn it into my library, and and here I sit in all of my imperial glory, as it were. Uh, and uh, it's it's it, I must say it's very difficult to leave this room. <laughs> now, um, we've been talking about the fact that you're going to get a video camera at some stage in the new year, and uh, what we'd really love to be able to do is to get footage of some of the stuff that you've got, and we'll put that out as a video podcast for the for the audience so they can get a glimpse into your little Napoleonic museum, huh? Well, I'll be glad to do that. Uh, well, yeah, Barbara and I decided we'd give each other a... Uh, a, a video camera and, and, and naturally I couldn't just go out and buy a halfway decent video camera off the shelf. I consulted with a, a variety of my uh, technologically uh, sophisticated friends and including you of course and and uh, the New York Times uh, fellow David Pogue and a few others and and I've now discovered that sometime in the next two or three months there's a a, a brand new uh, camera coming out a, a high definition camera that that records onto uh, these little memory chips, which I think is the wave of the future. And so I'm going to get that and, of course, you know, pay an arm and a leg for it. Uh, but when I get that, I will, in fact, be delighted to give a, uh, a high-definition uh, video tour of the, uh, 
of the Musée Markham. Well, I'm sure I speak on behalf of the audience when I say we're very much looking forward to that, and I'm, I'm looking forward to having a look at that, and I'm also looking forward to getting an opportunity to come over and visit at some stage in 2007. Now, uh, we'll... Well, I, I, certainly hope you, I certainly hope you do, uh, and I'll also point out to my, uh, to my listeners here, ever hopeful of selling one or two extra books, that, that much of the collection can be found uh, in the uh, Napoleon for Dummies book or some of the other books that I've written. And uh, they should, if they want a preview, they can feel free to go uh, and have a look at those. Plus, every now and then I will send you, as I did today for this evening's uh, uh, podcast, a few images uh, that you can post. Excellent. Now, I'll put those up um, after we record the show. So let's get on with the show. Now, in our last episode, number 14, we uh, s- sort of skimmed, even though it took us a better part of an hour, we skimmed over the, the famous Battle of Austerlitz, uh, December 1805, which, as we said during the show, was probably the, the pinnacle of Napoleon's military Career in terms of the the efficiency of the campaign, the the fact that at the end of it he'd pretty much routed all of Europe except England. The rest of his enemies or rest of France's enemies had really much been forced to sign peace treaties with uh, Napoleon, and and that brings us to this episode where we're going to start off January eighteen oh six. Napoleon has returned to Paris after the Battle of Austerlitz. And, of course, uh, once again, he was just a national hero. They thought this guy was an absolute god, didn't they? Well, they thought so with good cause. Uh, well, not so much a, an absolute god, but he, he is described as the god of war sometimes, <laughs> and, and no question about it, after Austerlitz, uh, Napoleon was really sitting in the catbird seat. As you say, Cameron, he had defeated Austria. He had defeated uh, Russia. Uh, Prussia had uh, wavered, had thought about getting into the war, but had stayed out. And the only, the only body left really was, was England. And, and Napoleon, who, who was a good diplomat as, as well as a good military leader, did what he could to organize Europe in such a way as to promote some lengthy period of peace. Uh, first of all, he, he, he turns to Prussia, the, the one country that he didn't defeat, but that was sort of, like I say, on the edge of, of getting into to combat. And he, he, he grants them a little bit of territory taken from, uh, from Austria. Uh, he eliminates the Holy Roman Empire, uh, essentially, he gets the 16 German states uh, to, to get together and join the Confederation of the Rhine, uh, which essentially brings a level of unity to Germany under his overall uh, uh, control uh, that they hadn't seen for, for a long time. Uh, he marries off his stepson, Eugène de Beauharnais, uh, to the daughter of the king of Bavaria, uh, one of the German kingdoms, and uh, and and as a result, uh, gains gains their everlasting uh, support. He, most interestingly, at least from my point of view, he 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 takes his older brother Joseph, who you know 
arguably, theoretically, could have been the head of the family. Obviously, Napoleon was. And installs Joseph as the king of Naples, uh, getting rid of uh, King uh, Ferdinand IV and Queen Caroline. Now, Joseph gets a lot of bad publicity, uh, particularly because he, later on he doesn't do a great job in Spain and he doesn't do a real great job in 1814. But it must be said that Joseph is a pretty doggone good king of, of, of the kingdom of Naples uh, and Sicily. And that's one of the images that I sent you that our uh, listeners will be able to see in due course. Uh, a beautiful little German engraving uh, from the period of time when he was uh, king. He was a progressive, reform-oriented type. He put into a place in central and southern Italy and Sicily uh, the, the same kinds of reforms that Napoleon had done. Uh, and, and really did a pretty doggone good job. And indeed, we'll probably say this again later on, uh, when he's asked by Napoleon, asked in quotes, uh, to be uh, the king of Spain, he's he's really not very happy about it. He had a really good deal. The people of uh, Naples liked him. He, he was quite popular. He did a good job, of course. I mean, anyone who's been to Naples knows that it's a, a wonderful part of the world to live both from the standpoint of climate and food and, and just so on. You just uh, need, so, so he does a you fine just need job. need half a dozen bodyguards and don't carry your wallet in your back pocket if you're there these days. No, no. Not to mention the fact <laughs> there's a bloody you, big I... volcano that sits just off of it, which is due to erupt again in the next 50 years. Well, I will grant you that no place is perfect. You're talking to a guy that lives in the Ring of Fire. I've got I've got Mount St. Helens uh, south of me. I've got Mount Rainier uh, east of me. Uh, I don't and, think they and, compete and so to Krakatoa though. And we have uh, we 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 have earthquakes on a routine basis. So, but the point is, it's a lovely place to visit and and a place to live. And if you've got to govern someplace, that's probably as well. And I want to say before. Before the 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 city fathers of Naples <laughs> descend upon you like like a horde of locusts, <laughs> think they listen to the show. That when 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 I have been in Naples, I have found it to be wonderful. And yes, it's true. There's the image that you've got to watch your wallet, which you have to do in any big city. Uh, but but I loved it and and had a wonderful time and found the people of Naples to be extraordinarily friendly uh, and 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 helpful when when I was lost, which of course was. Never actually really happened, but occasionally I would ask for directions just to confirm that I knew where I was going. <laughs> okay. Well, well, At any rate, so then he puts his brother Louis as king of Holland. That's another story, and we'll we'll talk about Louis uh, in a different program. Uh, but the but the point is that that he's really making an effort on the continent to see to it that the the peace is maintained, and he even he even tries with England. Uh, it looked pretty good for a while. William Pitt died in 1806. Uh, some folks actually think that the news of Austerlitz was the coup d'etat, you know, uh, or the coup de grace, I should say. Sorry, the coup de grace to to uh, to Pitt. Uh, and 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 Lord William uh, Grenville uh, comes in as 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 a PM, as Prime Minister, and he's got a Foreign Minister, uh, Sir Charles James Fox, and these guys are of what we might call the Peace Party. Of England, so there's at least some possibility that a rapprochement of some kind uh, might uh, happen uh, with England. Now, again, the, the the beauty of talking about history is that we all know how it comes out. 
uh, and we know that this isn't going to work out with England, but at least there seems a possibility. So after Austerlitz, to sort of cap up, you've got everything apparently going Napoleon's way. You've got victory over your two primary, two of your three primary enemies. Uh, you've bought off a, a fourth possible enemy, and the government of your your uh, primary enemy, England, has changed and potentially changed uh, for the better. So, so life is good, uh, but of course we know it doesn't last. Well, and I guess a lot of people, a lot of historians, tend to point to the fact that it was it was kind of after. Austerlitz, it was in 1806 when Napoleon really seemed to think he was unbeatable. And, and it was around this time that he kind of changed from uh, being the libertarian who was, you know, trying to prove himself and defend France against his enemies, where there are signs that he really started to think of himself as. Yeah, indefeatable and is that the word undefeatable undefeatable and really uh lord and master of europe he, he certainly see i mean he was always fairly haughty and arrogant and sure of himself and confident even as a very young man we, we've covered lots of examples of that but i think there are certain indications that in terms of his negotiations with the heads of the other countries of europe at this point he went. He seemed to change from being, you know, a little bit more carrot with his negotiation to moving more towards stick. Would you Would you agree with that? Well, maybe you call him haughty and arrogant uh, and self assured. <clears throat> he had very good reason to be self assured <laughs> and and to consider himself uh, uh, un, undefeatable. After all, he. He had not only won those earlier battles uh, uh, when he was a, a, a mere general uh, and, and then later as first consul in, 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 in the second Italian campaign, but he had just beat you know, the two most powerful nations on the European continent uh, and, uh, other than in France, and he had defeated them by a combination of military brilliance psychological warfare, uh, maneuvering, uh, you name it. So he had every right to feel uh, good. But does that mean that he was arrogant, uh, that he was trying to dictate terms? Uh, well, you can argue that he, he might have been a little bit more lenient with Austria. On the other hand, take two examples here. First of all, there was Prussia. Now, he had not defeated Prussia yet. Prussia was not the major power that that a lot of folks might associate with the name Prussia. This was no Frederick the Great uh, ruling and, and everything. Nevertheless, uh, he gave Prussia territory. He he really tried to to see to it that Prussia would remain neutral. He didn't demand, demand obedience, but he did hope for neutrality. But then take the case of Russia. Now, he had just creamed Russia, and he could have pursued, as we talked last time, the, the Russian army, he could have destroyed it. But instead, he allows the Russian army, as a gesture of good faith and, and a gesture of, of peace, to withdraw in good order. 
the idea being that he doesn't want to destroy the Russian army or continue fighting Russia. He wants peace. So if that's arrogant or if that's uh, aggressive, uh, well, you know, call it what you wish, Cameron. But to me, to deliberately refrain from pursuing and probably destroying an enemy on the run, uh, that's that's peaceful. Not, that's making an effort to establish peace. Now, mind you, I'm not saying that he didn't want to control as much of Europe as he could. I'm not saying that he didn't want to bring the reforms of, of, of Napoleonic and revolutionary France to the rest of Europe. But if Prussia and Russia behave at this point, and mind you, Russia has lost no territory. Russia's army is in good shape. They could very easily be uh, allied with, with Napoleon. Prussia has stayed out of the war and has benefited from it. They've gained territory. They easily could stay neutral or become allied with Napoleon. And even England, and I'll, 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 I'll read you a little quote. I was going to do this later. Uh, but Napoleon comments on the 15th bulletin of 22 October 1806. Now, this is, this is after the Battle of Jena, which we have. <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about skipping ahead. Uh, well, it is, but it, but it gives me... Uh, you, you were talking about the relations with England. Okay. One may ask, what will England gain by all of this, all of the war that England brought on? She may have recovered Hanover, kept the Cape of Good Hope, preserved Malta, made an honorable peace, and restored tranquility to the world. She was willing to excite Prussia against France to push the emperor in France to the end. Well, she has conducted Prussia to her ruin procured the greatest glory for the emperor and the greatest power to France. And the time approaches when we may declare England in a state of continental blockade. Is it then with blood that the English hope to feed their commerce and revive their industry? Great mischief may come upon England. Europe will attribute them to the loss of that minister, an honest man who wanted to govern by great and liberal ideas and for whom the English will one day weep with tears of blood, and, uh, and 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 that would be Fox. He's talking about who 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 dies later in 1806. And again, I I jumped ahead a little bit, but that gives you a sense of what happened and why it happened. Instead of accepting peace, England and Prussia at England's and and and, and Prussia's Queen's uh, instigation insisted on war. And you can't blame that on Napoleon. Napoleon had absolutely no reason to continue fighting and indeed took steps not to. Is Napoleon a peacenik? No, I'm not saying Napoleon wasn't you know, quite willing to fight and quite good at it, but he had nothing to gain by continuing a military campaign at this point. All I'm, all I'm saying is that this. Uh, it seems to me that it was kind of after Austerlitz where we see a gradual change. It didn't happen suddenly, but from 1806 onwards, and we'll see this over the next few episodes, I guess, there was a, a change in Napoleon's um, attitude, I think, towards who he was and his destiny, and a lot of it seemed to come back to, hey, I did Austerlitz. You know, don't argue with me. I did Austerlitz. But anyway, let's let's not get bogged down on this. We'll... Well, I, and, and and I know I don't want to I don't want our listeners to think that I really truly truly disagree with you. There's no question he was more self confident. I disagree with the arrogant point, but he was more self confident. He was more willing to tell people, "Listen, 
you're not dealing with some two-bit, you know, emperor here. You're dealing with the the master of Alstalis. Yeah. You're dealing with someone, and each year he's he says, and also the ma- master of Hena, and also the master of whatever, you know, uh, Friedland, etc. <clears throat> and and so yeah, he does become more convinced that anyone who messes with him will lose. And I think, frankly, that that harms him in his ability to to deal with things. But but that's not surprising. With each accomplishment, we have a higher opinion of ourselves. I mean, here I was, a, a, a little nobody historian, and then I had a chance to do a series of podcasts <laughs> with Cameron Riley. And now I clearly think of myself as the master of Napoleonic history, all because of this great victory. Let me let me uh, read a letter um, from January 1806. There's two letters here. I'll just read a little bit of them. Um, as, as people will remember from an earlier show, when Napoleon decided to become emperor of the, the French, as opposed to emperor of France, he brought the Pope... Right. In to uh, officiate in the ceremony, and and uh, and his relations with the Catholic Church and with the Pope were never were never really great. You know, they sort of band-aided over some stuff. He did the Concordat, and they were at least on speaking terms. And it, it starts to go it starts That's to go right. awry around about here. But here's a, a letter that he writes to His Holiness the Pope on January seventh, eighteen o six, and it begins, "Most Holy Father, I am in receipt." of a letter from your holiness under date november 13 i cannot but be keenly affected by the fact that when all the powers in english pay banded together to wage an unjust war against me your holiness should lend your ear to ill advice and write to me in such immoderate terms your holiness is perfectly free either to keep my minister at rome or to dismiss him the occupation of ancona is an immediate and necessary consequence of the military incompetence of the holy see It was better for your holiness to see that fortress in my hands than in those of the Turks or English. And he goes on, but it's a very politically sensitive letter. Now, immediately following that, he writes another letter to his uncle, Cardinal Fetch, where he says, The Pope has written to me under date November 13th, a quite ridiculous and lunatic letter. These people thought I was dead. I occupied Ancona because in spite of your representations, nothing had been done to defend it. Besides, things are so badly organised that whatever had been done, it could never have been held against anyone. Make it clearly understood that I won't stand any more of this nonsense and that I won't tolerate the presence of a Russian or Sardinian minister at Rome. It is my intention to recall you and to replace you by a layman. As these imbeciles see no harm in a Protestant occupying the French throne, I shall send them a Protestant ambassador. And he goes on. I just, I, I just love the change in tone. So at this stage, still very careful and and uh, treating the Pope with kit gloves, a little, little bit harsh on him, but you know, very, very general politic. But then let's loose on his uncle, Cardinal Fetch. And you know, in all honesty, Cameron, I suspect that the private musings of leaders today. Uh, if you could have access to them, uh, would reveal similar kinds of things, uh, two leaders of the world, and you can pick whichever ones you want, uh, that would on, 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 on the, in the public eye, uh, say very nice things to them, very politically correct. Oh, yes, I'm so happy to, you know, great, you know. And then you, if you could read what they're saying to their aides, 
in private. You know, that moron, who does he think he is, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I suspect that that's very true. And so you're getting a letter that we wrote to his uncle, Cardinal Fesch, uh, where he probably says it the way it was, you know, this, you know, the, the, the place was, was, was incompetently run and, and, uh, he needed to step in. Uh, he did see himself, there's no question, Cameron, uh, as someone who was a, 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 a master in a sea of fools. Uh, and to some extent, he was justified in this. I think that he overcame that attitude and tried to deal with most powers in a respectful and politically useful for, you know, advantageous for both sides way. Uh, but remember, as we've said before, he had this one problem. None of these other countries in the long term were simply willing to say, Napoleonic France is here to stay. We're going to make our peace with them and we're going to just go on. They had done that with the Bourbons. He had one Louis after another. And, and that was fine. Even when they had conflicts and they had wars, no one tried to eliminate the Louis. You defeated, uh, uh France. You, 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 you make some kind of a deal. Okay. With Napoleon, they don't want to simply restrain, uh, France's ambition. They want to eliminate Napoleon as France's leader. And that's a huge difference that we always have to keep in mind. And that puts more pressure on Napoleon to perform and to really convincingly defeat his enemy. Uh, and, and it's a shame. Uh, and I don't mean to say this as a way to, to justify everything that Napoleon ever did. Some folks say, well, Markham likes Napoleon. He won't recognize when he has faults. That's not true. Napoleon overreached. Napoleon was guilty of hubris. Napoleon made some misjudgments. He delayed any number of times when he shouldn't have, even up to the very end of his career. He, he didn't always have the ability to make the, the kind of really fast, good decisions that he did early in his career. But overall, Napoleon was a positive factor. And the, the so-called Napoleonic Wars were largely brought on not because of his arrogance, not because of his sense that he should rule Europe, but because of Europe's unwillingness to accept him as the head of, of, of France. All very good points. Now, um, it's around about this time where he starts to have a few difficulties with uh, his peer, the Prussian King William III, who was around about the same age as Napoleon, wasn't he? He was about 36, I think, at this stage, and not one of the brightest lights of Europe. <laughs> I believe I said that in my book. No, you're absolutely correct. Uh, uh, he, he was William III was was a nice enough fellow, and I think well-meaning, but he was very easily led. He was very easily influenced. Uh, and two groups of, of people influenced him. First of all, he had his, his nobility class, which really hated France and hated Napoleon. Uh, they really wanted war. But they by themselves probably could not have forced the king into, uh, a conflict with Napoleon. The king understood, you know, I'm not Frederick the Great, and my army is not Frederick the Great's army. But the king was under the influence 
of Queen Louisa. Now, Queen Louisa was a very dynamic, forceful woman, beautiful. I've, I've sent you an, an engraving, uh, or rather not an engraving, uh, uh, a hand-painted oil miniature in my collection to post. And you will see from, from that she's quite good-looking, and she is a warmonger. We talk about Napoleon. Some of Napoleon's attractors say all he wanted was war, blah, blah, blah. It was Queen Louisa of Prussia who wanted war. Uh, and she really forced the king, who was weak and vacillating, uh, into uh, supporting England's effort to form a fourth coalition. Uh, he allied himself with Russia uh, and tried to use that alliance to, to bludgeon Napoleon into withdrawing all of their troops from all of these German territories, including the Confederation of the Rhine. Uh, but when we think of a, a King uh, uh, Frederick, we, we really, uh, King, sorry, King, King William, we really have to remember that the power behind the throne, at least in this regard, uh, is, is the Queen. And a few days after uh, Jena, uh, and I'll read you several of these uh, as we go along, uh, Napoleon writes in his bulletins, a number of times about her. Here's one of my favorites. Uh, the This is from 17 October, three days after the Battle of Vienna. The emperor is lodged at the Palace of Weimar, that's Napoleon, uh, where the Queen of Prussia lodged several days before. It appears that what is said of her is true. She is a woman with, very pre- with a very pretty figure, but little spirit, incapable of seeing the consequences of what she does. It is necessary today, in place of accusing her, to feel sorry for her because she ought to have great remorse for the evils that she has done to her country and for the influence that she has exercised on her husband the king whom one must present as a perfectly honest man who wishes for peace and the well-being of his people i mean that's you know remember this isn't a military bulletin you know this is the the ninth bulletin of the 1806 campaign and here's Napoleon, as he will do a number of times, making some very pointed remarks about about the Queen, the Queen of uh, Prussia. Now let's um, look at a bit of biography on uh, Frederick William III of Prussia, uh, born August 3rd, 1770, died June 7th, 1840 was the king of Prussia from 1797 to 1840, 43 years on the throne. Which uh, is not a bad run, but no, it's not a bad run at all. And he he was a reasonable person from everything I've read of him. And I'm I'm hardly an expert on on uh, on King William the Third, but from everything that I know of him, you know he, he was he was fine. I'm not saying he was a an enlightened monarch and was great for for the peasants or anything, but you know there was nothing particularly wrong about him by the standards of the day. And he alone would never, I believe, have engaged in a war against Napoleon, particularly when he chose not to do so at Austerlitz. And, and, and you know, the, the irony of all of what we're going to talk about here is that had William jumped in against Third Coalition in 1805 when we had the Austerlitz campaign, he might have made the difference. His troops... Coming in from that direction, his influence, I mean, who knows? He might have made the difference 
and turn the tide on Napoleon. But he chose not to engage. And so Napoleon had his great victories, first at Ulm, as we talked about, and then Austerlitz. But then after after all that, now he jumps in. And with him, of course, England, and with him, of course, Russia. Uh, and it, it does him no good. In fact, it's, it's a disaster for Prussia, an absolute disaster. Absolute disaster, and uh, unfortunately not so much of a disaster that uh, he didn't take care of Blücher in the battle. If only Blücher had fallen in that battle. Was he even fighting in that battle, or was he retired at that stage? Okay, well, Blücher uh, commanded a cavalry uh, corps under Brunswick uh, in 1806. Uh, he led directly to uh, uh, their defeat at Auerstadt, uh when he uh, rather foolishly went flying off uh, with his cavalry and, 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 and managed to get them uh, butchered. Uh, uh, on the other hand, he did help cover Hohenlohe uh, uh, when, when he retreated uh, and so on. Uh, but he didn't play the kind of major role uh, that we will see him play uh, uh, later on. The thing on. I like about um, this period of Blücher's career, and people who don't know who we're talking about, when we get to the Battle of Waterloo towards the end of the series, you'll understand the importance of Blücher from the Prussian army. And by the way, yeah. at, this, at, the, at this rate, Cameron, <laughs> we will get to the Battle of Waterloo, which took place in 1815, uh, in time to celebrate the bicentennial of the battle in 2015, we might still be recording this episode when that comes. Um, well, that's 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 very true. We're about 35 minutes into the episode, and we haven't even talked about the campaign yet. That's right. I, before we get to that, let me finish Bluka's point. Um, uh, Bluka insisted that a clause be written into the capitulation <laughs> document that he had to surrender due to lack of provisions and ammunition and that his soldiers were honoured by a French formation along the street. He was allowed to keep his sabre and to move freely, only bound by his word of honour and was soon exchanged for General Victor and was, uh, you know, let go. But uh, I just love the fact that he had that written into the capitulation document that, you know, it wasn't that he didn't fight a damn good fight. He just didn't have enough well, and ammo. That's, and that's 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 common of Blucher. Blucher was a sly old fox, and he was he wasn't uh, quite as aged and firm in 1807 as he as he as he was in 1815, and uh, he did quite well in 1815 too. So, uh, and and of course, you you raise an interesting uh, point, and, and maybe we'll do a a program on this sometime, but. Prisoners of war, uh, particularly officers of any level, and obviously at his level, were treated quite well. And and he was put on parole and allowed to uh, make his way uh, uh, back to wherever he was being held, probably at Verdun. I don't recall where Blucher was sent to. And was in, in, in due course and fairly quickly uh, exchanged for uh, uh, for a French uh, general of, of, of equal rank. Uh, this is uh, a very common kind of thing, and a lot of folks have a hard time understanding how very different and in some ways more genteel, at least for the officer corps, uh, the whole question of being a POW, a prisoner of war, was in those days. I've, I've done a great deal of research. Uh, I hope in, indeed to publish a book, and in fact, uh, 
a friend of mine, uh, Dominique Contant, in, uh, in France, and I may even do this uh, jointly. Uh, and uh, I've done a lot of research on prisoners of war, and it's a completely different deal uh, than anyone can imagine uh, by today's standards. Sounds like a good book. Another Markham classic for you <laughs> to add to the bookshelves. So let's let's get into the battle here. So yes, of course. So the brush, the the, the Prussians, the the, the Prussians. Um, you need some medication. <laughs> I just finished some. I think that's part of my problem. I'm not used to having medication when I do the show. Somebody, somebody's got to yes, stay. Well, on I'm track. taking mine yeah. now. Uh, we got no hope of finishing this under an hour if we're both on medication. Um, so so the Prussians decided that uh, they were going to break their peace treaty and started mobilizing troops where uh general mac uh, the austrian general mac uh had advanced on ulm before them the, then you see the prussians doing sort of the same thing don't they well sure they the the, the prussians uh, begin to move forward uh they are uh de- determined uh, that they're going to force the 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 issue and in fact one of the big problems for the prussians is that after having allied themselves with the Russians, the Prussians and the Russians, uh, they don't wait for their allies to get there. That was part of the problem, of course, uh, at Ulm. Uh, the unfortunate General Mack got way too far in front of the main body and didn't wait for them. Uh, and uh, now we have the Prussians doing the same thing. The uh, the Prussians uh, move forward too far, too fast. All of a sudden, they're out there. Not only are they out there away from the Russian allies, but they also are divided. A portion of their army is at Jena in Germany, and another uh, is at Auerstadt. Okay, now at Jena, they're facing Napoleon, and at Auerstadt, they're facing one of Napoleon's most brilliant marshals, military commanders, uh, Marshal Louis Davout. So we take one at a time. It's a twin victory, uh, in spite of the, 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 the publicity that comes later. Uh, it's a twin victory. First of all, on the 14th of October, Napoleon is facing uh, General Hohenlohe's detachment of about 38,000 men. Now, the, the communication isn't great. Napoleon thinks he's got the whole doggone Prussian army in front of him. Uh, but in, 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 in fact, he's got almost a three-to-one advantage because Napoleon has over 90,000 crack French soldiers against 38,000 Prussians. Uh, and it's, it's kind of funny because what, what, you know, the history repeats itself. Uh, here we are once again, this time with the fog of Vienna. Uh, the fog lifts in the morning. Uh, Hohenlohe looks out across the field and oops, all of a sudden he's not facing what he thought was a small detachment, maybe even smaller than his group of 38,000. But here's about 90,000 plus Frenchmen staring at him and it, led by none other than, than, than the Emperor Napoleon. Uh, and of course it's too late now. There's nothing you can do about it. There's no reinforcements that are going to make it there in time. Uh, and, and they do fight a, a, a fairly reasonable effort. Uh, the Prussian soldiers should not be dismissed as, you know, as, as, as nothing. Uh, but by the middle of the afternoon, 
Uh, they're on the way out. Napoleon is on the way in. And just about that time, here comes probably the greatest uh, cavalry commander of his day, uh, Marshal Hokiam Murat. I should send you an image of him as well. Uh, Murat comes dashing in, as, as he loves to do, and he just routes the Prussians. You know, they, they are, are running, as, 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 as the French would say in those days, with a sword at their back. Here comes the, 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 the cavalry with a sword at their back. At the end of the day, at Jena, the French have lost Oh, I suppose around 5,000. You never know for sure exactly, but about five grand. Uh, the Prussians had lost somewhere in the vicinity of 25,000. That's a five to one ratio. Uh, that's good uh, for anybody. And that wasn't even the main action. King William was over at Auerstadt uh, with about 63,000 people, uh, soldiers. And he's facing Marshal Davu, who has only around 27,000. So you might expect that the Prussians would draw even for the day by defeating Davu. But while Davu may not have been a Napoleon, Davu was certainly a fine commander, and he had crack troops. Uh, and, and, and at the end of that day, uh, the, the, the French are victorious yet again. In spite of the fact, by the way, I thought I was going to br- I was going to bring this up. I'm glad you're getting to this bit because it's a Marshal Marshal Bernadotte, a name which will live in infamy, a a name which we will hear again and again and seldom in a positive light, <laughs> didn't bother to move in support of Davu. I mean, Bernadotte had. Uh, a significant force uh, and could have made uh, the victory uh, by Davu an absolute slaughter but he just dawdled and took his time and, and never bothered. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an idea my opinion of Bernadotte. I was recently in a place where I was buying some, some fine miniatures and I bought one of Ney uh, bought one of Suchet both of which you're going to be posting I didn't bother trying to buy one of Bernadotte. I'm not entirely sure that I would have Bernadotte <laughs> hanging on my walls. Although, having said that, I'm getting non-buyer's remorse and thinking, well, maybe I should go get it after all. <laughs> now, uh, we- he is, after all, a marshal and an important figure, but he is a figure that is far more harmful to Napoleon than he ever would be helpful. And this is an early warning sign. When he sits on his hands and doesn't move in support of Davu, you've got to really wonder what's going on. So, um, to give people a little bit more perspective here, Napoleon had issued orders to Bernadotte to lend support to Davu, who, as you said before, was very much outnumbered against the Austrians and uh, did nothing. Basically sat on his hands. His uh, battalion didn't fire a, a single shot all day. And it was it was appalling, and Bernadotte tried to justify himself, talking about difficulties, largely imaginary, that he had encountered along the road, and by all you know measures of the day, should have been court-martialed and 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 probably executed for failing to obey the commanders of the emperor. Now he 
I agree completely. Now, he didn't. And and quite possibly one of the reasons for that, as we mentioned, I think, on an earlier show, at this stage he was married to Desiree Clary, who almost became Napoleon's wife. Uh, she was his girlfriend much earlier on in his career before he met Josephine. Pretty much she was the girl he dumped when he married Josephine. And Joseph, so Joseph was married to her sister, his brother, Napoleon's brother Joseph was married to his sister. He had gone out with her for, uh, I think, a year or so. And so it was probably out of that filial connection that uh, Bernadotte managed to save his head. And I've got some quotes here from Napoleon. Um, this is out of David Chandler. He says, uh, according to Savary, Napoleon said... This business is so hateful that if I send him before a court-martial, it will be the equivalent to ordering him to be shot. It is better for me not to speak to him about it, but I shall take care he shall know what I think of his behaviour. I believe he has enough honour to recognise that he has performed a disgraceful action regarding which I shall not bandy words with him. Now, this leniency um, obviously turned out to be a mistake, and as people will find out later on, Bernadotte defected from France, uh, went on to become the crown prince of Sweden, deserted Napoleon, actually, you know, lined up in one of the future coalitions against France, and his family is still the uh, royal family of Sweden to this very day, and, and uh, you know, we all had to suffer through ABBA in the 70s uh, as a direct result of Bernadotte's defection. <laughs> now, wait a minute. I, I like one or two of ABBA's songs. I went home against you. you're absolutely... You're, you thank you. You're absolutely uh, right, Cameron. I think what our listeners need to always understand about Napoleon was that he was from Corsica. And one of the traditions of, of Corsicans was a strong tie and to and loyalty to and love of family. And as far as Napoleon was concerned, uh, Desiree, and and unfortunately from his point of view, uh, therefore, a Bernadotte uh, was family. N technically, that wasn't the case, of course. But Napoleon was loyal to, to Desiree. It's questionable who dumped who, by the way. I mean, Desiree, I think we talked about this. You know, she went off and the communication was off and on and, all, you know, back and forth a little bit. And, and finally, when Napoleon was in Paris, that, it kind of ended. But, but uh, regardless of that, I think you have hit it right on the head. Uh, anybody else other than someone really, really close to Napoleon for other reasons might very well have been court-martialed and, at, at, at a minimum, drummed out of the service. Uh, and, and, and that, by the way, is what I think Napoleon should have done. I think Napoleon should have found, maybe not court-martialed him, should have said, this guy can't be trusted, so I will make him a governor somewhere. I will give him a lucrative position where he can do no harm. He can be the, 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 uh, ambassador to the Vatican for all I care you know find some place where he can't do any harm but he and his wife my first true love uh, will have a comfortable life uh, a fairly decent amount of money uh, it will be an honorable existence but he cannot command troops that could potentially harm me if Napoleon had done that never mind execution or prison, or anything else. If Napoleon had simply found a face-saving 
way to get Bernadotte out of the action. At least the aspect of Napoleon's career that Bernadotte could influence would have been different. Now, would that have made any substantial or significant changes down the line, uh, particularly in 1812 when, when he turned on Napoleon and, and supported Russia? I don't know. I'm not sure that there was ever a time when when he made the absolute difference. Not like uh, Luca. But who knows? It could have been. Not like oh, Luca, but... Um it was no, not at all. It was like actually Luke. as a, I don't want to spend too much time on Bernadotte, but it was kind of a direct result of this battle that he had up in Sweden because King Gustavus the Fourth of Sweden had sent a division in to support the Prussians, and it was kind of uh, Bernadotte's behaviour on the day that led to him actually being liked to a large degree by the uh, Prussians and the, his Swedish allies, and at the end of the day ended up uh, them offering him the the throne of Sweden but i've always i've always seen Desiree as a little bit of a lady macbeth i've always seen her as you know the woman's the woman <laughs> scorned by napoleon who ended up you know lying in bed at night with bernadotte beating him up going you know what you're too good for him and you deserve better than that and you're better than a marshal and you're better than he is and you know well you know you you may very well you may very well be on to something uh, there, Cameron. You may have once again shown uh, uh, a great deal of perception because it could very well be that Bernadotte, who has never struck me as a particularly strong person. I mean, in some ways, I think of Bernadotte and King William III as similar. They could easily be influenced. And it may very well be that Desiree uh, was doing that. On the other hand, when Bernadotte goes off to uh, uh, to Sweden, if I recall correctly, Bernadotte, or excuse me, uh, uh, Desiree stays in Paris. So, you know, just exactly who was influencing whom there, uh, it would require more research into that specific question than, than quite honestly I have okay. done. Back, back. Uh, but it's an interesting question. Uh, and 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 you may very well be correct. Back to the battle then. Um, so it was it was an incredibly swift and decisive uh, victory for the French. I guess one of the great ironies ironies, of course, of the battle is that a lot of Napoleon's tactics in the field had come down to him from Frederick the Great of Prussia, and you know they, they were then turned upon Frederick the Great's peoples with such resounding success. I think Napoleon even stopped off it. Frederick the Great's tomb at some stage during his uh, time? Uh, yes, he did. In fact, I have a snuff box, and, and, and perhaps I'll send you an image uh, that shows uh, Napoleon. It's a pressed horn snuff box that shows Napoleon at the tomb of, of Frederick the Great. Uh, and, you know, Napoleon, for good cause, admired Frederick the Great, admired the Prussian military tradition. Uh, but the Prussia of King William was not the Prussia of Frederick the Great. Uh, no one's ever going to call King William the Third King William the Great, uh, other than maybe the Great Fool for being uh, pushed into this, and and pushed into it he was. Uh, and after after Hena, uh, the whole thing falls apart for for Prussia. Uh, clearly. Uh, Napoleon now has defeated both wings of the 
of the Prussian army. He's killed or captured tens of thousands of men. He pretty much has their entire artillery park. He has all of their baggage. Uh, if nothing else, he has proven to Europe that Austerlitz wasn't just a lucky shot. You know, someone might have been sitting back and saying, "Well, okay, he got to he, he got to uh, Ulm, uh, and an idiot Mac had had gone way out in front <clears throat> of everybody, so he he took advantage of that and." And somehow he managed to play the Russians and the Austrians for fools at Austerlitz. But he's a paper tiger. He really, you know, he's going to get his comeuppance one of these days. Well, maybe he will. But he's not going to get it by the Prussians. He's soundly. And not just him, but the French army. Davout on the one hand, Napoleon on the other. Soundly defeat, one might say thrash, the, the, uh, the Prussians. And, and send them packing. Uh, and so everybody now understands. You were talking a little earlier that, that Napoleon, after Austerlitz, uh, begins to have all of this great self-confidence. I suppose one might argue that it was really this campaign, short as it was, with the twin victories at, 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 against the Prussians, uh, that really proves to Napoleon that Austerlitz and Ulm were not flukes, that he really was uh, good, <clears throat> and that the French army... And his commanders, his chosen commanders, in this case, Davout, really was good. Because they do. And Napoleon enters Berlin on the 27th of October. Berlin is pretty much out. And, and indeed, uh, along the way to Berlin, of course, he, he, he does visit the tomb of Frederick. And he grabs uh, in Berlin a huge arsenal. Uh, William has flown uh, the coop, of course. He's off to Königsberg. Uh, which is modern-day Kaliningrad in Russia, uh, uh, where I've been, and, and that's that's the province also where where Elau and Friedland are. And the day he enters, <coughs> excuse me, uh, the day he enters uh, Berlin, he writes in his 19th bulletin of the campaign on the 27th of October, and I quote: "To give an idea of the extreme confusion that prevails in this monarchy." It is sufficient to say that the Queen, upon her return from her ridiculous and sad trips to Erfurt and Weimar, spent the night at Berlin without seeing anyone. <clears throat> that the people have been for a long time without any news of the King. Remember, he had flown the coup to Königsberg. And that no one has provided for the safety of the capital. And that the middle class have been obliged to, to meet to form a provisional government. Everybody is witness that the Queen is the author of the difficulties that the Prussian nation suffers. Everywhere we hear it said, a year ago she was so good, so sweet, but since that fatal meeting with the Emperor Alexander, how she has changed. Now, uh, so that's that's the story on her. I mean, apparently. and well, that was Napoleon's story on her, and and he uh, attacked her mercilessly, um, publicly as well as privately, and. You know, I, again, I think it's fair to say that it was, you know, partly his attacks against her and the king's characters, but mostly hers, that uh, really it, it didn't serve him any favours. I mean, when it, all, all it seems to have done in the minds of the Prussian people is get their backs up against the wall, make them more defensive, love. Queen Louise even more, and you know, it sort of comes back to bite Napoleon on the backside, uh, you know, over the course of the next 
seven years. I think if he'd been a little bit more well, gracious I, in his victory, as he, he was in, in previous victories, if he'd been a little bit more gracious, uh, he may have saved himself a lot of troubles down the track. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, Cameron. And He was and, the man. He didn't really need to tell everybody how... how pathetic these people were he was already the man you don't have to rub it in when you're the no. man well, well no but but let me just for the sake of uh, of argument suggest to you here that maybe this is his strategy he doesn't want the king who is the the official power and he doesn't want the people to feel that he's trashing them and so he says listen you guys were led astray by this woman who was a warmonger she talked you into it and some of her noble people in the war party, and I've not given you all the quotes, of course, but he talks about that and some specific individuals that were known to have really pushed for war. And basically what he says is the Prussian people didn't want this, and not even the Prussian king truly wanted this. It was this small group of people led by this warmongering queen. They're the reasons for this. And so my Gripe is not with the Prussian people, who I admire, or the Prussian king, who I admire, but with this small group of people. Now, look at the ruin they have brought you. Let's try to, to, to make up and go forward. That doesn't really work because Prussia continues to stay allied with, with uh, Russia. And in our next episode, uh, since we're up to an hour now almost, uh, We'll we'll talk about the campaign in the winter and the the, the following summer against Russia. Uh, technically, Prussia is still in the action, but the action does in fact shift to uh, to Russia, uh, who has been moving forward in support of Prussia. And again, you you wonder what would have happened if King William had simply waited until his soldiers could ally themselves directly with the Russian soldiers. Had they done that, the numbers would have been far different. Whether the outcome would have been different or not is anyone's guess. Uh, but he didn't, and to that extent, it is in fact the king who deserves the responsibility because I think that he could have waited. I don't think the queen would have forced him to move forward immediately. If he just said, okay, fine, I'll fight for you, but I'm going to wait till the Russians get here. I'm not going to prove myself to be the unfortunate uh, uh, General Mack in this case. I'll wait till the other guys get here to help out. Well, that might have changed things. It's impossible to say. Whilst I completely acquiesce to your analysis, my learned friend, and I'm, I'm quite sure that Napoleon was right and that the, the Queen's character was uh, not what it should have been and, and was the cause of the troubles. As a Corsican, he should have understand that you don't get anywhere by dissing someone's mama. <laughs> well, that's true. And, and, and I mean, you know, you got to remember what, what Napoleon's trying to do. He's trying to show a justification for the war. He's trying to explain to the Prussians as well as to the rest of Europe and, of course, to the French back home, why this campaign took place. But he was place. dissing, and it's he much dissing their it's mama. Always, you can't diss the mama. It's like saying it's your always, mama smells of elderberries. I mean, you, <laughs> it's always easier, Cameron, to justify something if you can find 
a scapegoat, for the lack of a better term. If you can find a specific person and say, this person is the reason. And everybody understood that. Historians today understand it. This isn't just David defending Napoleon. Historians today understand she was the primary force that got Prussia into the war. And she screwed it up badly. Because if she really was going to get Prussia into the war, they should have gone in 1805. They may very well have tipped the balance in 1805. Uh, but they went off pretty much on their own in 1806. And that was really And they get dumb. their revenge in 1812, but, uh, 1814, but, <laughs> 1815. But, um, 1815, yes. When, when Blucher comes back into the field of Waterloo, uh, the, the, the Prussians are getting their Queen, revenge. Queen Louisa uh, danced a jig. Um, now, just we, we're not going to have time, obviously, <laughs> to get to Poland or Warsaw or Madame Waleska or anything like that tonight. But what, what we should finish off before we close, a couple of important things that happened in 1806 that we haven't covered in enough depth, I think. We, and we're not going to have time now. We're nearly out of time. But we, we should talk more about the Confederation of the Rhine and the dismantling of the Holy Roman Empire. I mean, this was pretty historic. After, gee, uh, 1,500 years, thereabouts, what, since 300 AD to, what are we, where are we, 1,800? See, after, you know, one and a half millennia, Napoleon basically starts the dismantling of the Holy Roman Empire by creating the Confederacy of the Rhine. Well, sure, uh, and it's all to his benefit. He pulls uh, these these people together uh, and uh, uh, organizes them into a loose confederation, uh, theoretically independent uh, uh, from him, uh, but uh, uh, one that depends on him to to a uh, to a certain degree anyway. Uh, and he pulls these these. Uh, the, the, the small uh, states uh, into uh, uh, this organization, eliminates the Holy Roman Empire, uh, that, that technically happens a little bit later, uh, and uh, for, for some period of time at least, it works pretty well. But one of the great ironies of all of this is that the Holy Roman Empire bringing them out of the control of Austria. The king of Austria was also the Holy Roman Emperor. Francis. And putting them more loosely under the control of Napoleon rekindles a spirit of nationalism, of German nationalism. And so, for a time, they are supporters of Napoleon but in time, they begin to resent their ties to uh, <clears throat> Napoleonic France and uh, begin to, to pull apart. Uh, by the way, in Napoleon's the Confederation of the Rhine was 16 principalities, most important of which were Bavaria, Saxony, Westphalia, Württemberg, Baden, and then for good measure, uh, it wasn't a German state, but he tossed in the Grand Duchy of Warsaw and nothing else to give it some additional uh, protection. Uh, and it brings the French Empire right next to Prussia and Austria, which made both of them uh, quite nervous. And uh, eventually, uh, some of the smaller principalities get combined into some of the larger ones. Uh, but 
What's interesting and what's very important to remember, this wasn't just a power play on Napoleon's part. Napoleon brings them the kind of reforms that he brought to uh, France. He institutes versions of the code Napoleon. Uh, they were allowed to do their own versions and, and have their own modifications, but basically uh, some of them became quite progressive. Some of them didn't adopt very many reforms uh, at all. But what really happened was that they began to resent Napoleon. They're expected to provide soldiers in 1812 in particular for his Russian campaign. And they did so. A lot of them didn't really like it. But when Napoleon starts to go down, his retreat, or as I always prefer to say, his strategic withdrawal from Russia in 1812, uh, some of these, these principalities begin to waver in their support. And in time, they begin to drop out of the coalition. And maybe the worst example, and we'll talk about it again, I'm sure, the Battle of Leipzig in 1813. Uh, the Saxon army was on Napoleon's side, and it literally turns around and faces their French allies and starts firing on them right in the middle of battle. I mean, that really sucks, folks. I mean, that's you know you're in trouble when you have things like that happen to them. But, just, but from uh, a historical perspective, and I should correct my dates before, I mean, the, the formation of the Holy Roman Empire happened on the 25th of December, 800 AD, when Pope Leo III crowned Charlemagne as Imperator Augustus, uh, basically right. creating the Holy Roman Empire, and it lasted 1,206 years almost uh, to the day. Uh, it was August 1806 when uh, Francis II, uh, basically under an ultimatum from Napoleon, resigned his uh, crown of the Holy, his title of the Holy Roman Emperor, and dissolved the Holy Roman Empire. So, uh, 1,200 years that lasted in one form or another until Napoleon. It was pulled it apart. It was twelve hundred years, but it was twelve hundred years, uh, Cameron. But it would be a mistake to say that it was this great independent power. I mean, it was, after all, think about it. The Holy Roman Emperor was also the 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 Emperor of Austria. So clearly, it was a a, a, a collection of Austrian vassal states, if you will. And now it became somewhat more loosely, in all honesty, a collection of French vassal states, uh, much more loosely, because Napoleon did not assume direct control over them. He, he wasn't known as their emperor, uh, like the emperor of, of Austria was. Uh, and they had enough independence that they went their own way to a certain extent, and certainly in the final analysis felt uh, strong enough to, to desert Napoleon. Uh, as he was going down. But it is the beginning of German nationalism, of German independence, uh, of German unification. Uh, and you can pretty much draw you, a straight you line. Get to the middle of the, you get to the middle you get to the middle of the century and you have an awful lot of, of northern Germany uh, unified. The, the Franco Prussian War, uh, which uh, brings to an end Napoleon the Third, Napoleon's nephew's reign, uh really brings a totally united Germany into being. Uh, and we all know uh, in the 20th century uh, what happened. Uh, so it's one of those things that had unintended consequences, 
uh, who's to say uh, how it could have been done better. Uh, you can go all the way back to the Battle of the Teutonberg Forest to, to, to see you know, changes in the whole German heritage, and that was on the Roman Empire. Uh, but whatever it was, Napoleon is sort of the last major push into German uh, nationalism and German unity uh, that leads to uh, modern-day Germany and all that that has implied, at least century. Oh, I just lost you for a couple of seconds there. You went all fuzzy on me. Um, well, just before we wrap up, uh, the other thing that I... I went fuzzy. <laughs> yeah, I got some static, some hiss on the line, just yeah. in your last uh, statement. No one ever accused me of being fuzzy. <laughs> now, just uh, the other thing I want to... Uh, we're, we're way over an hour here, but we'll keep going. People always tell us not to worry so much about it. We always do, Cameron. We always do. Is, um, and for our listeners, just to give you an idea, when Cameron and I talked about this before, we thought we might get through all that we've done, plus Alau and Friedland, ending up with the uh, campaign of of 1807 and, and, and you know, the, the, the two emperors on the raft at Tilsit and so on. Uh, and that was going to be the hour show. It's now been an hour and ten roughly, uh, and we've, we've not even gotten to the <laughs> Russian part of the campaign. But that's the beauty of these podcasts and the fact that we have uh, allowed ourselves to recognize that we will just keep going on as long as need be. We don't have a set timetable. Uh, and, and again, as you just said, our listeners tell us, go for it, we like it, and as long as our listeners like it, well, that's why we're here. If our listeners don't like it, then we'll change. Yeah, I think we'd just keep doing it for our own amusement if we didn't have any listeners. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, that could be, too. Because I'll just tell you, people seldom, <laughs> seldom am I happier in my Napoleonic work than when I'm sitting here talking about this with you. Uh, I, I really, truly enjoy this. It's, it's great good fun. to have someone else to talk to except uh, other than our wives. Um, now, and the cat, in your case. Now, um, I was going to say, my cats get a fair amount of attention, too. Now, the other thing I want to talk about that happened in 1806 was the creation of the continental system. And we, we've mentioned it briefly, I think, on previous shows. But I, I think it, it deserves a little bit of attention now. Um, now, obviously, the United Kingdom, Great Britain, had arisen over the, the, the late 18th century, the beginning of the 19th century, as a major economic powerhouse they'd had the 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 industrial revolution they were a major manufacturing center in places like um um, what's the big manufacturing center birmingham birmingham and the other one um begins with m Oh, terrible of me. Manchester. 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 Birmingham and Manchester, these places had arisen. And the, and, and they'd sort of fought a bit of a, uh, an economic embargo battle already against France, as we'd mentioned early, by uh, destroying the merchant ships. And there'd been some tussles around that, which kind of led to the Third Coalition, was part and parcel of the Third Coalition. And, and now Napoleon decides to turn the tables on it and creates the continental system where he basically places a European embargo, not just a French embargo, but a European embargo on goods, on on transactions with Great Britain, basically, which makes him incredibly unpopular, not just in the other European countries, but also in France itself, doesn't it? 
Well, it, it does and it doesn't, and, and to a large extent it does. Now, you have to understand that, that first of all, uh, and we've talked about this before, England uh, or Great Britain had the attitude that they could sink any ship they wanted to or they could board any ship and, and confiscate the goods if they determined that it might somehow make its way to France. So there was an economic embargo that was being enforced on the sea uh, by England. Uh, and it was basically an illegal embargo, uh, as particularly as it, it turns to sinking and, 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 and boarding ships. But, but nonetheless, there it was and, and might makes right or whatever. So Napoleon decides basically, listen, to can play that game. Uh, and so he creates, uh, starting with the Berlin decrees, uh, in 1806, uh, he starts a, an economic blockade called, as you say, the continental system. The idea is, we will seal off the continent from England. Now, you got to remember, Great Britain was much more dependent on trade than, than the continent was. The continent could trade uh, within itself because it had a, a huge number of resources and a huge population base. Uh, Great Britain, of course, the British Isles is much smaller, smaller population base, smaller uh, uh, overall industrial level. It needs trading partners. So the theory is good. The problem, of course, is it's very difficult to seal off an entire continent. And so you have a thriving black market. Even Josephine, his wife and empress, was buying things on the black market. Uh, Louis, the king of Holland, Napoleon's brother, uh, basically uh, ignored it when it was convenient. Uh, and and uh, there was a lot of smuggling going on. Uh, and indeed, that eventually costs uh, costs him his throne. When, when, Louis find, when Napoleon finds out what Louis is up to, he says, good, you're, 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 you're off. Uh, Napoleon's brother-in-law, uh, Hokiomura, who was at that point the king of Naples, later on became the king of Naples, you know, didn't exactly enforce it. That said, you have more success than is oftentimes recognized. It really did have a negative effect on England's economic position. But that was more than balanced by the problems it was creating for the economy of the continent, for Napoleon's image, and then maybe the worst of all, Napoleon says, in order to seal off the continent, I must control the Iberian Peninsula, which is to say Spain and Portugal. And it was his move into Spain and Portugal, which I believe signals the end of Napoleonic Europe. It's the biggest single mistake he makes. Another mistake, which many people think was a worse mistake, but I disagree, uh, it is to a significant extent because of, of El Tsar Alexander of Russia refusing to honor the continental system. He did for a while, and then he was under pressure from his uh, uh, family and, and from his nobles, his business community, to, to stop honoring it. And he decided to stop honoring it. That's what led to the invasion of Russia in 1812. So you've got the invasion of the Iberian Peninsula, Spain and Portugal, 
the so-called Peninsular Campaign, which is the death knell for Napoleon. And you also have the the, the more famous uh, uh, invasion and disaster in Russia, both of which are caused to a very significant extent by Napoleon's need, perceived need anyway, to enforce the continental system. It probably is one of those things that sounded like a good idea at the time, but it really wasn't a very good idea. And in the long term, it probably uh, contributed more than any other single factor to Napoleon's ultimate uh, demise. Just interesting that, you know, it was uh, his attempt to, well, if I can't, and and we're going to see, uh, I imagine the next episode, um, his last attempt at trying to get ships over to Great Britain and how that ended in disaster. But he was thinking, well, if I can't get ships over there, I'll fight them uh, uh, in an indirect manner through economic warfare. And of course, we could draw analogies towards uh, economic battles being fought around the world today, but after the uh, hate mail that I've been receiving from at least one listener about our uh, unrelenting attacks of, and our bashing of America and President Bush on this show, I, I guess we probably shouldn't go there. Well, uh, probably not. And he referred to you, as my, he referred to you as my sidekick. Well, that was the biggest insult of all, of course. I couldn't believe. Let me tell you, my friends, if there's a sidekick here, it ain't me. No, all, all, all kidding aside, I consider Cameron and I to be absolutely equals uh, on, 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 on the show, and, and, and we've become very good friends. Uh, let me just comment on that, though. Listen, you've got to learn from history. And the real point of studying history, other than just it's interesting and it's fun, is to to learn from it and to draw conclusions from history that relate to the modern-day situation. And you look at a lot of what Napoleon did and some of the stuff in Egypt we talked about, and yes, we should have figured out that there's something to be learned there as regards the the, the nature of what's going on in the world today, in particular uh, what's going on in Iraq where uh, the United States, my country, and I'm a proud American, uh, is having to reconsider uh, its 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 approach, uh, having dis- discovered, not surprisingly from my point of view, that it hasn't worked out real well. Uh, and if some people are offended by that, I'm sorry. Now, Cameron, you and I disagree on the Queen. I'm a great admirer of the Queen, and, and you are, are not a great admirer, at least of the monarchy, and that's fine. I think there's room for, for, for people to, to have different opinions on that, and I suspect that, that people in the United Kingdom are, are not completely unanimous on the idea of a monarchy, although I think most, most Brits and, and myself as an American, certainly included, have a great admiration for, for Queen Elizabeth. And while we're at it, let me show you uh, a, a little bit of nonpartisan uh, behavior here. We all know that I'm not a great fan of the current incumbent. And I wasn't a great fan of, of a gentleman who was president for two years, uh, but former president Jerry Ford uh, just passed away. Jerry Ford was the president who became president after Richard Nixon resigned in disgrace. And, and he really made, I thought, uh, even though he was a very conservative Republican with whom I did not agree on very many issues, including his partner Richard Nixon, he nevertheless made 
uh, a, a nice effort uh, to to bring America together again and to heal some of the wounds of of Vietnam and of Watergate. Uh, and he he just passed away at the age of 93. And uh, as an aside, we should all live to 93. But but I want to pay tribute to to him and and wish his family uh, well and, and and my condolences uh, for someone who got thrust into a situation and 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 did his best and. To a large extent, it, 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 was, it was pretty good. And, and there's a little bit of nonpartisan, uh, 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 a rabid liberal Democrat paying tribute to a very conservative Republican president. Uh, and on that note, my friend, uh, I think uh, we may want to draw this to an end since I believe we are now at about an hour and 22 minutes. All the best, David, and all the best listeners. Thank you again for tuning into the show, and we'll hope you join us in episode 16 of The Napoleon Show, which should be out sometime in January, where we will look at the uh, Fourth Coalition. We will look at Napoleon's battles with the Russians, his affair with Murray Waleska from Poland, and, uh, and, oh, yeah. and much, much more. Oh, there's, there's, there's all sorts of wonderful things. And ladies and gentlemen, in a, an unabashed and... and, 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 and and, and blatant effort to sell books. If you really want to see how it all comes out, feel free to go out and and pick up a copy of Napoleon for Dummies. I I must say that that Wiley will be will be pleased if we see a surge in in sales. And who knows? They might they might even let me write Caesar uh, for Dummies, which is the next thing I'd like to do. But uh, uh, do what you can. And at any rate, I wish all of you the happiest the most prosperous and the most wonderful of New Year's. I hope all of you have a super 2007. Uh, Cameron, I wish you all of my very best to you and your family. Uh, have a great New Year. Enjoy the celebration. And I look forward to the next episode of this podcast, which will be, I presume, sometime relatively early in January of 2007. Au revoir. Happy New Year. <laughs>